We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bring out your date! Bring out your date! Bring out your date! From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to what is going to be a pretty depressing episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Sunday, August 28th, as we record this show shortly after the Chicago White Sox home series against the Arizona Diamondbacks. A Diamondbacks team that is not good. They are not an offensive juggernaut by any stretch. They came to the south side, beat up Johnny Cueto Friday night, beat up Davis Martin Saturday night. And there are just two games remaining in August, and the White Sox have already clinched a losing month because the Arizona Diamondbacks hit two solo home runs off Dylan Cease, and Kendall Graveman, one of the prize acquisitions, uh, blew the lead, and the White Sox lost 3-2. to two. They got swept by the Diamondbacks. Since June 13th, when the White Sox had the easiest remaining schedule in baseball, they're 36-34. and And unless they win these next two games against Kansas City, they will be below 500 entering September. Time is quickly running out, or maybe... It already has ran out with the White Sox. Quotes coming out of the clubhouse from manager Tony La Russa and White Sox players urging the team to continue believing there's still time for this season to turn around. But asking everyone to still believe or if they even believe is a bit alarming this late in the season. The effort on the field shows a team lacking in belief that this ship is going to turn around. After Fire Tony chants have echoed at Gary T. Ray Field, we finally have our first sell the team sign show up during Saturday night's embarrassing loss. Fan frustration and anger have boiled over, and they want significant organizational changes. Will we see organizational changes? Who should be changed out, and who could possibly be rumored to come in and help? Let's talk about the possible end of the 2022 White Sox, and joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And Jim, what a weekend for the White Sox. Sure was. You mentioned that this is going to be a depressing show, and I'm trying to figure out like how to make it less depressing. And 
The only thing I can think of is if I say everything with a smile, maybe you can hear my smile through the microphone. <laughs> this isn't even a live show. We're, stream we're not streaming it, so you can't even see the video. And be, uh, you know, have your heart lifted by my my beaming joy. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it was kind of a sampler of the way the White Sox have lost, you know, over the course of three games. Like you had a one bad inning. Uh, you had... Uh, a case where, you know, and this happened twice during the Baltimore series. And then again, where like they hit a homer in the first inning and then immediately the joy is erased the following half inning. Like the lead does not even last through the next chance of immediately given away. Um, and then the offense goes quiet after that uh, until the very end. And then you had the, 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 you know, quintessential Dylan Cease, no margin for error, uh, two bad pitches and like not even necessarily two bad pitches, but just, you know, you know, one, one fly ball caught the wind and rode it out. And another one, you know, was well hit enough to beat the wind, but just, you know, he should be able to make a couple bad pitches and come away with the win. But because the White Sox can't hit sinker slider guys, you know, it's kind of uh moot basically. And then you had, you know, the, the other thing that was very satisfying about the weekend uh, in terms of, if you like really wanting cold, hard evidence to pile up against Rick Hahn's terrible winter. But on one day uh, on Saturday, you had Joe Kelly, having the game get away from him uh, in the top of the ninth. And then in uh, Sunday's game, he had Kendall Graveman uh, losing the game in the top of the ninth. So that's what, uh, $17 million of reliever, $18 million on the payroll for next year. <laughs> you have Jake Diekman giving up a run that pushes over $20 million of reliever who are coming back next year. So yeah, it's uh, uh, that's where the bulk of the investment went and they're not getting their money's worth. So that's where we're at. Woo! Yes. Yes. Hear me smile. We're going to talk about Rick Hahn later, but first I want to talk about the quotes that are coming from the clubhouse. So you have Tony La Russa, who said the worst thing you could do is get frustrated and depressed and discouraged after Friday night's loss. And what he encouraged the team was get angry, do something about it tomorrow. That's the message. Get some adrenaline pumping and get back to even. The White Sox responded by losing 10 to five the next game and then losing three to two to get swept by the Diamondbacks. So your dear leader is quite inspirational to motivate his team to play better baseball. And then Jose Abreu speaking to the media, one of his quotes was, if we believe it, we can make things happen, but we have to believe it. To me, that is a little bit concerning because that's suggesting someone that has been part of the White Sox for a very long time, a pending free agent, once again in his career is looking around the locker room like he did in 2016 and starting to question the motivation of his teammates. But there was another part in your absolutely terrific Sunday column, Jim. And if you did not get a chance to read it, you have to read Jim's column from Sunday morning about Jose Bray's message that you highlighted in your column. Quote, even though I don't think we are as young as we think we are. Is Jose Abreu taking a shot at Yoan Makata, Aloy Jimenez, and Luis Robert? I think that's a couple things. I think, one, that, you know, there are enough veterans on the roster when you just look around the diamond, uh, even guys who are maybe not in that 20-something set. You anchoring positions, you have, you know, Abreu, you have Grandal, you have Pollock, you have, you know, Angle, who's 30, you have Harrison, who's in his early 30s. Like, you have, you know, just... It's not a completely green team going through everything for the first time and being in the heat of their first pennant race, uh, or if you want to even call this a race. E even if, you know, they did have, you know, half the team or half the lineup being precocious youngsters, they would still have enough veteran presence there to, 
you know, should be able to like write the ship before it capsizes. So there's that. But I also think, yeah, there was a little bit of allusion to youth is not an excuse, both for the veterans who are there and also the young players who are there. Like when you look at how long they've been around, um, you know, Tim Anderson is going to be 30 next year. You have Yuan Makata, who's going to be 28. And looking at their full seasons here, like you have Robert, who is finishing up his third full season. You have, uh, you know, Jimenez, who's finishing up his fourth. You have, you know, uh, you know Roberts coming out, I think, or Mancata's being sixth, Anderson seventh. It's like uh, you, you, they should have been around the block a few times. And if they don't have full seasons, like if you're saying like, well, they haven't really had full seasons because they're getting hurt in weird ways that they shouldn't be getting hurt for. Mm-hmm. So like, it's hard to call them young when they get hurt, like middle-aged men get hurt, like doing routine things like, Oh, I went to bend over to pick up the newspaper and I hurt my back. Like that's kind of what we're talking about with the nature of these injuries. I was running hard to first and I pulled a hamstring. I was fielding a bunt and I pulled a hamstring. Like I was ranging to my left and I pulled a groin, like nothing unusual. It's not like the, you know, Luis Robert uh, spraining his wrist on a slide, you know, that's a history. He has a history of sliding injuries, but that is like a, uh, an impact injury, like a, you, you can see how it happened and why, and like, you know, just the physical ramifications of his force going into a stationary object in Jonathan Scope's knee. Like I get that injury. Like that's, that'll happen. Uh, collisions will happen. Um, you know, just awkward slides, such like those injuries are for, more forgivable than like, just, I ran to first and I stepped on first base and I hurt myself. Like one guy doing that is bad luck. A uh, lineup full of them is seems like it's gotta be preparation to some extent, whether it's uh, individual training methods or, you know, team issue training methods, like something is not right. So that's, I think it was a, a multi-pronged statement, but I do think it did allude to the young guys being not so young anymore. Uh, you can't be used as an excuse. And you know, the thing about believing, to me, you know, when, when I look at that quote, I look at, you know, maybe it is like a confidence, desire, criticism on behalf of the, a clubhouse, but it also reminds me a little bit of like Reynaldo Lopez when he talked all those years about, you know, at least two years about like how... He needs his mentality to improve and his focus to improve in order to execute pitches better. And that's the reason why he's struggling. And then he has double eye surgery. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden it's so much better. Like just, you know, he's able to just, you know, it, it simplifies so much for him being able to see the catcher's signs and not to worry about, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, rattling around in the back of his head as he's trying to bear down on pitches. And to me, especially when you're, when you're dealing with a player who's, you know, tr- speaking through a translator, Lopez, the same thing. Like, I think, you know, sometimes things get boiled down, you know, too simply uh, and, and, and kind of revert to cliches. And with Lopez, it was a physical issue. And I think with Abreu, it's similar in that, like, yeah, it might be a confidence thing. But if it's a confidence thing, it might be because they just can't get the job done. <laughs> I think, you know, you can try to will yourself to do it. But, you know, like you could have the Charlotte Knights come up, take their over the roster, and they can try to think that they're as good as the Houston Astros in a 10-game series. And that's not to keep them from going 2-8 and eight or 1-9 and nine or even 0-10. Like, you know, just so that's why I think when it comes to belief and desire and, and, and adrenaline and, and not getting down to yourself, like, yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. That's all true, and you can't give in mentally, but there's got to be a point where you realize you're kind of talking to yourself because you have to and not because you actually believe it. And so I think, you know, that's, I think, the war they're waging right now. And I don't think it's necessarily a mark on any players or the team more along the lines of just like, this is kind of where this excuse is getting threadbare and words are all we have. So we really can't 
abandon the words because if we don't have that, we have nothing. Tony Russa, after Sunday's loss, when asked about the frustration of getting swept by Arizona and losing nine of their last 11 games, said, quote, I just get angry. I don't like frustration, discouragement. That's loser crap. Just seeps energy out of your body. I just get angry and want to do something about it. You're 76 years old, dude. You're, you're a manager. Like, there's not much that you could do about it other than making up the lineup card and deciding who's going to start <laughs> that day uh, with the players out there. And if the players are not responding to you, well, that's somebody else's problem in the front office and the organization that needs to be paying attention to this because the White Sox are not responding to Larusa. And I think you even wrote about this. Maybe it stemmed from a John Greenberg from the Athletic column about Larusa's previous past in, I don't want to say babying, players but giving certain players a lot of time off and you know before Sunday's game Aloy Jimenez did make a pinch hit appearance so he's played in 53 games we're going to get to that significance in a moment mm-hmm. but LaRusso said that Jimenez had sore legs the White Sox were going to rest him on Sunday and they're going to take advantage of the off day on Monday with hopes that he'll be good for Tuesday and said quote tough for him to miss today but it would be foolish to push end quote you are one game below 500 before Sunday. You're five games back at Cleveland. Are you taking this seriously or not? Because you only have 35 games left to go before Sunday's game. And you don't want to push someone who is 25 years old to be playing and against what I thought was supposed to be a weak pitcher in Zach Davies. And Aloy Jimenez is one of your hottest hitters. He can't play. And he's only played in 53 games this year, which is a little more than 41% of the 2022 season. He only played 55 games in 2021, so that's only 34% of the season. And he did play 55 out of the 60 games in 2020, but he got hurt towards the end of that season. And uh, he missed a couple of playoff games, but he was able to come back in game three, and he got hurt in that particular game. Eloy Jimenez... When we do the Sox Machine offseason plan project, I'm willing to put down a small wager that more than 51% of our offseason plan projects, Jim, have Aloy Jimenez being traded. Like, he has the potential to be a very good hitter, and we have seen that. But, man, if he can't play, like, 41% this season, 34% the previous season, as you mentioned, he's going to turn 26 years old next year. Like, if you can't play more than 140 games in your mid-20s, you're probably never going to do it in your major league career. This is the time in your professional baseball career where you go to your baseball card or baseballreference.com after you retire and see all the seasons that you played 140-plus games in a year. And that allows you to have monster numbers. The fact that he has to be given days off right now because of his sore legs when the White Sox, theoretically at the time, were still in a race for the American League Central. That just speaks heavy volumes, and I'm now contemplating whether it something that you suggested last offseason, so maybe you're right, Jim, you were a year ahead of what the White Sox should have done, is you may have to move Aloy Jimenez and sell other teams that, yes, he can be this good hitter, and sell him for below market value because you can't trust him to play. <laughs> Please ha- take Aloy Jimenez. He's really good. Our training staff sucks. Your training staff is so much better. Exactly. That might be the sell. That might be the sell. <laughs> you are smart. We are dumb. <laughs> you are healthy. We are sickly. 
sickness is relentless and we give up <laughs> just opposite of the university uh, of chicago commercials do you see those commercials when you're watching yeah i do and i and i think it's a terrible slogan like it's just sickness is relentless like that's depressing like you know you can't dig out from under that that just makes me feel bad that you know like we're up to the task or like we'll match it in effort like yeah but you should exceed it in effort anyway um it's uh yeah, I'm trying to think like, well, like my first thought was as for the bet, I would withhold on like making that bet public until like most of the offseason plan projects are done just because in the event people love knowing that you're buying people stakes, they might trade a <laughs> on purpose just to get to like, you know, 75% and just be like, ha, 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 Josh has to buy a steak. So don't put your thumb on the scale. I think for that, let's, uh, let, you know, let's keep that under wraps yeah, to, in order to preserve the integrity of the off season. <laughs> Good, idea, project. Good idea. Good uh, idea. <laughs> when Larusa, the, the thing about John Greenberg mentioned was from Jimmy Pearsall's book in 1984, after Pearsall was dismissed by the Reinsdorf uh, Einhorn, uh, new ownership because he clashed with LaRusa and Pearsall criticized LaRusa for basically babying his players and saying like, you know, Greg Luzinski couldn't run out a single uh, because his hamstrings hurting. And then like he busts it from like second to home, you know, max effort when he needed to. It was just selective dogging it when he, when he suggested on air that his players are dogging it, uh, you know, LaRusa came after him and that's what LaRusa does. He defends his players, you know, ardently. And even like the ninth inning on Saturday when, uh, AJ Pollock got knocked down by the fastball. You know, LaRusa spent the entire at bat, like, and CSN Chicago didn't show this. I, I first found out about it by the MLB.com Arizona reporter who got a quote from Tori Lovello in the other dugout saying yeah, that LaRusa was staring at him. And then I looked at the Arizona broadcast and they showed LaRusa just kept on cutting to him. He just had this, this, you know, I, I suppose it was an angry glare, but it looked kind of like a blank stare. Uh, into the dugout, just, you know, not blinking. And I had to, when I was taking uh, gifs of the uh, staring, I had to wait until the camera cut away just so people didn't think they were watching the same five frames on loop. Like I couldn't find just anybody distinct walking by or any like yeah, anybody breaking up the action enough to say like, this is how long the, the clip was. Like I had to wait till the next camera angle to show like that this is how long he was staring. And this is all one continuous clip, not uh, anything on a, you know, I'm not like gaming it to where he's just staring for 35 seconds uninterrupted. He was actually doing that. And Bob Brenly, who is the Arizona uh color guy now he said that uh he's very uh, defensive about his players when they get up and in now if his pitchers throw up and in you know that's always an accident <laughs> like he criticized Larusa for his hypocrisy and yeah but you know that's his way of showing anger but it's just you know it's impotent anger like it's just like yeah Lavello he was asked about it. he's like yeah I know what that's gonna happen you know who cares like it was an accident like he you know he's not meaning to do that in a, a game that we're leaving by five and just looking to close out without incident like just you just shrug it off. Like, but yeah, LaRusso is going to, he's going to be angry. So I'm going to glare at the other dugout and the other manager isn't going to care. Like that's kind of what he's down to. So yeah, it comes down like that's really, you know, when it comes to foot on the gas, we have to turn this around all hands on deck, like playing somebody like Jimenez uh, would be the call. The thing is, you know, with, with Yohan Makata, you know, his recent hamstring injury, like that's one that just, I don't know how to judge these guys for how injured they are because he made that charging play in a bunt. Uh, great play. And then he hobbles afterwards. But Mankata often looks like he's pained every time he does something with like uh, anything resembling maximum effort. And then he's fine. So I just learned to shrug off like his, his you know, occasional limp because he seems to you know, just 
shake it off, and that's fine. And then he makes that great play uh, in shallow field, catching a pop-up that's behind him, and he looks fine doing it. And then he ends up, you know, being out of the game, and then he ends up going on the injured list, and Larry Garcia has to come back from the injured list after one rehab game. And now he's uh, over, you know, in his two games back, including a very, uh, I, I guess, just bad pinch hitting decision in the ninth inning on Sunday's game. So, you know, like you look at an injury like that, then you see like Garcia falling over 20 times. And I don't think that's a um, exaggeration, say 20 swings he took that were compromised by his uh, lower body just being absent. And he gets 20 swings to, you know, show how bad it is. And then Jimenez, you know, has a bad step and he's, he's out for a couple games. And just like, I don't, I don't know. And it sucks because I don't like questioning players' toughness. Like, Yohan Makata, you know, we know that he's been battling leg stuff. And he played 130 games. He's played 140 games when not his best self. Like, we've seen him play through some stuff. So I know, like, you know, though he shows it on the field, his threshold for pain and playing through stuff is not zero. Like, he has a certain threshold. So I don't want to say, like, oh, he's soft or, oh, he's a wimp. But then, like, you see some guys playing through it. Like, Robert's playing through his wrist injury. Um, You know, Kopech tried to soldier through having... uh, you know, hamstring issue and throwing 88. Like, you know, you have certain guys playing through things. You have certain guys like leaving the field with less apparent strain and physical agony that they're playing through. And I have no idea what to make of it because it feels like there's no adult supervision and players are pulling themselves or writing themselves in the lineup or taking themselves out. And, you know, maybe it's reflective of how much players want to go through it right now. Or maybe it's just, you know, reflective of certain player stubbornness because like Michael Kopech is not helping when he's, throwing 88 Larry Garcia is not helping when he falls over in the batter's box. Like, you know, maybe it's a case where, uh, you know, players should be told to stay down versus, you know, get in there. You're not, you're not helping by being a gamer here. The lack of leadership, the lack of a, uh, lack of an adult, uh, supervision in the, this decision-making and just having players kind of sorting out from themselves, you know, makes it leaves them very vulnerable to criticism and it kind of puts them an island of saying like, Oh, Moncada's taking himself out of the game. Why? You know, you know, Jimenez is, you have Chuck Garfine yelling at Eloy Jimenez because, you know, he takes himself out after one bad swing. And like, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, but you know, like if we're talking about it and I don't feel like a complete jerk for saying, why is he out of the game? I, I don't like being in that position because I recognize that these players are tougher than I am, that they play through a lot of crap that we don't know about. And so like, I, I don't want to be a meatball about it, but at the same time, like it just, you know, when you have, as you said, 35 games left and Jimenez is your best hitter and you have a lineup with Josh Harrison and Romy Gonzalez at the top of the order. And you have Andrews and angle and, you know, Zavala at the bottom of the order. Zavala's actually been pretty good, but I mean, like you have like this, you have clusters of hitters where they come up in the order. You see like, who's up next? Like, okay, I can go to the bathroom. Like there, there's, there's nothing to watch here. This, this inning, like Jimenez really hurt. Like it's almost a case where I hope he's hurt. Like, I don't hope he's hurt, but like, I hope he's hurt because like, that would be like, <laughs> Even, you know, Jimenez 80% is more watchable than having Romy Gonzalez at the top of the order and having that be a, a presentable idea. So, yeah, it's just it's tough and it's it's not fun to watch. It's also not fun to talk about because I don't want to be a jerk. But I feel like, you know, the Russe is making me be a jerk or they're, you know, the way that, you know, maybe it's the front office, but like the way these injuries are ha- being handled uh, leaves them open for a lot of criticism that may be founded or unfounded. And it's just... They're not they're not doing their players any favors by the way they've been handling it. Yeah, it's just a, it's a repeat. It's a repeat of 2021 with the injuries and it seems to be a a pattern here where the White Sox and the you know from the front office management 
and the players themselves, they're just not learning the mistakes that they made last year. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny thinking about it now. Um, you know, that quote, um, we're, we're not as young as we think we are. Like, that could also mean, you know, maybe it's partially a Abreu's reflection on where he is in his career. Like, you, you know, you don't get an unlimited amount of chances to get to the postseason. You know, maybe that's another way of him, yeah, him of saying that is just like, more careers behind you than you think. And before you know it, the the clock is going to be more apparent. So you can't piss chances away if uh, you think you got them. And so maybe that's a, another case too, where he's looking at the, you know, he's 35, he's aging really well, but all, he's aging. Like he's, you know, his his power number is really down this year. It's, it, it could be one reflection of just like, he's trying to figure out how to stay in the majors and make himself productive, you know, over the course of the next two to three years and, and get chances to play deep in October. And so like, it might be a reflection of, yeah, the, if you waste chances, if you waste windows and you have to rebuild again, like those years disappear in a hurry. Well, that's why I have the question to Jose Abreu, what's important to you? Is the most important thing after this season retiring as a Chicago White Sox player? Or is the most important thing for you now is to chase after a World Series ring? Because if it is the second part, I would take this free agency very seriously and field calls from a lot of teams throughout Major League Baseball and not be so quick on the hook. And maybe that's why we're not hearing about Jose Abreu signing himself to a new deal, Jim is to take other what other teams think about him seriously and contemplate leaving the White Sox to chase after a World Series ring. Yeah, I don't know if like a Bray or somebody in his position thinks about it, but I mean, he look, might look at Andrew Vaughn and say that, you know, they have a guy here who can handle a position, and if they need to device, diversify their kind of talent to where they're not so right-handed heavy, first base heavy, speed deficient, like that might, you know, he might look at the depth chart and say like, this is one of the areas, this is one of the ways by, you know, letting me go, uh, this might be one of the ways that they can open up a roster spot for somebody who balances their lineup better, even though I'm not the problem with this team. Like he just might look at it that way. And so that's why he's not so insistent on it because he realizes like, that's, you know, if I try to prioritize myself again, I might be being selfish here. Like I'm not, he might not look at it that way. Like if I'm a player who's just trying to get the job that I want, you know, and it's a very competitive field, like maybe you're not so generous of spirit and I wouldn't blame him for it. Everybody's got a finite amount of time to make their money and, and, and get their preferred positions in, in baseball. So, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody looking out for themselves, but I would be, you know, kind of surprised. And also it wouldn't be completely out of character for him to say, I'm not the best for the White Sox right now. And he, takes off the ring that he got from Jerry Reinsdorf yeah, for winning, getting a cycle and he plays on his desk and says, you know, it's not me. It's you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely the white Sox. If Jose Abreu and the white Sox break up and if Jose Abreu leaves the team in free agency and signs elsewhere, because I think he's also got to look at it. The side of the coin, Jim, is this team going to be good enough for me to win a, a championship next year? I, I can't trust. I can't trust him. Now the young guys to stay healthy for an entire season. I'm playing more than 150 games, and I don't know if they're going to play more than 75. Yeah, and they might, you know, like somebody like Houston, Yuli Gurriel is, is replacement level at first base this year. They might say like, hey, we'll take you for a year at market rates. Absolutely. And, and Yeah, and so like, yeah, why would he not play there? So yeah, I mean, there, there are cases where just there might be a better situation for him to start every day and be in a less high maintenance organization that looks for him for so much leadership and looks for him for like, you know, you are shepherding these players. You are this master splinter uh, for a youth movement. That's all Michelangelo's. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that is true. That is yeah. true. So yeah. We've talked about the players. We've talked about Larusa. Jim and I will take a quick break, but there's still much to discuss, such as the heroes reigning the sell the team sign, Rick Hans fate, and how about AJ Brzezinski as the next White Sox manager? Aren't you guys excited? I hope so. We'll talk about all that next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. If you're still listening to this, you haven't checked out on the season, but the same can't be said overall for the Chicago White Sox fan base. When looking at the average home attendance in 2022, the average home attendance at guarantee rate field for the White Sox was 26,753 fans. After Sunday's game, that has dropped to 25,821 in the month of August. And when comparing to the 2021 attendance, when the White Sox are on their way to win the American League Central, the White Sox only had 42 games where they could have full capacity because of COVID restrictions. And they saw a significant increase in average home attendance going into August and September in 2021. The average home attendance in 2021 was over 28,000. In September, going into the first week of October, it was over 29,000 for the White Sox. And that, that does not include the postseason games. The year-to-year drop for the White Sox in the month of August is more than 9% 
from August 2022 to 2021. And in just the last month, the White Sox have seen a 3.5% drop in home attendance. And it's projected to even be larger from August to September for the Chicago White Sox. I imagine it's going to be a double-digit drop compared from September of 2022 to September of 2021. I bring this point up, Jim, because the Chicago White Sox are carrying their highest player payroll in franchise history. The collective bargain tax amount for the 2022 season, covering the entire 40-man roster, is more than $211 million. This number comes from COTS contracts. That's a 19% increase from 2021. The opening day roster for the 26 man was 193 million in 2022. That was almost a 50% increase from the 2021 opening day 26 man roster. If the person in charge of your product raised expenses by at least 19% and your business is seeing at least a 9% decrease from the previous year in fan attendance, you now have a business problem. The baseball operations people are now messing with the profitability of the business. And recapping Rick Hahn's offseason and during in-season moves, adding Josh Harrison and then Reese McGuire and taking Reese McGuire and acquiring Jake Diekman, adding Elvis Andrews during the season, trading for A.J. Pollock, Adam, adding Adam Hazley, re-signing Lurie Garcia, signing Vince Velasquez, signing Johnny Cueto off the street before opening day, and the big offseason moves, Kendall Graveman and Joe Kelly. All of those players combined, combined, have a 2.5 war according to fan graphs. Josh Harrison and Johnny Cueto make up 2.4 of that war. Combined... Those players are making $48.7 million, which is $19.5 million per war. Rick Jim owns, he holds an MBA from Northwestern. So I'm hoping that he's aware of the writing on the wall. The, the, this case that I just whipped up should be enough to merit his dismissal. There's also the lackluster track record of being the White Sox GM for 10 seasons that you could also point to is the way that 2022 unfolded too much for Rick Hahn to survive this, Jim? I, I want to say yes, but... It's the White Sox. Yeah, being the White Sox, being Jerry Reinsdorf, like, it feels foolish and, and feels like I'm setting myself up for false hope to say, no, oh, yeah, he's out. I don't know how much the White Sox ownership group can take of this. Like, that's, that's the one thing I keep coming back to is, like, yeah, I know Jerry Reinsdorf like stopped adding contacts to his phone in like 2014 and just doesn't want to get to know anybody else. And it's just more you know, he, like anybody his people hire is like, yeah, I trust you. Uh, they don't have to talk to me. Like, that's generally how I think he runs his business. I understand that. But he, I would think like the you know, partners and such, you know, the, the shareholders that he he's in charge. But I mean, I imagine like his shareholders have a little bit of say in terms of just like, you know, how much they want him to spend, setting the budget lines, et cetera. And just say like, this is terrible. Like, yeah. It, he spent so much more money on the payroll to make it worse. Like this can't keep going, but I just don't like, I can see it being more likely that he stays. They just cut his payroll and he, you know, his hands are tied. Uh, and then like, you know, he gets skates kind of on another winter of like, well, the ownership is tying his hands. Poor Rick Hahn. He, uh, you know, what is he supposed to do? I, I think some of the Teflon is worn off, but he still has a surprising amount of it left. Like I've seen some of the blame shift from Kenny Williams is responsible for Hans bad moves to Tony Larusa is responsible for Hans bad moves. And just, 
I, I guess I get why everybody wants to believe in him because, like, you want to believe in somebody. What I just laid out, as far as the case against Rick Hahn, is a business case. He is hurting your bottom line. And there's no business on planet Earth right now that would accept watching your expenses increase by 19% and your projected revenue total from what you were projected before the year starts is going to be at a loss of at least 9%. Even though you get the TV money and Major League Baseball signing these big TV contracts, everybody gets the same cut there. What is the deciding factor and how much money that you make compared to your other competitors within the league is your own regional sports network TV deal and the amount of fans attend your ballpark and how much they spend in your ballpark. And if White Sox fans are checking out because the team that Rick Hahn built is not very entertaining to watch and they're not going to spend their time and money anymore coming into the stadium. Well, now you got a business problem on top of the baseball problem that you have in which your team's below 500. Thinking about just the reasons why like people still side with Han and, you know, I, I kind of go back to like, remember when he took over for Kenny Williams and people were clamoring for maybe Han to come up and replace Kenny Williams. And Han was a well-regarded executive at the time, future GM, other teams wanted to interview him or he interviewed elsewhere. Ultimately didn't, uh, you know, took himself out of the running for jobs, maybe understanding there was a succession in place, but um, mainly it was because he didn't say dumb things. You know, when he had Kenny Williams there, he occasionally said dumb things. You have the Colorado Rockies who say dumb things. You had, you know, back when like Kenny Williams was GM and he had more ex-athletes as GMs, they would say, you know, they would have like the kind of, you know, they liked challenges. I think like, you know, Kenny Williams and Kevin Towers loved like making trades with each other and seeing who would win. Like they would like to just... And ultimately, no, no hard feelings is more competitive, is more of a you know extension of their athletic uh, competition, taking up the front office. Whereas you know modern front offices with MBAs and Ivy League types are more about like arbitrage and trying to get the best deal possible and trying to make sure that you know um, you know efficiency is named the game. Whereas when it was more you know ex athletes, they were just more about like, well, let's see if I can beat these guys. Like that's. It, you know, so you get dumber trades, you get bigger risks. And, uh, with Kenny, you know, just, you know, his bravado and his, um, you know, confidence to the, to the extent of arrogance, uh, a lot of people got tired and turned off by that, especially as further removed he got from 2005 and people wanted somebody who just brought a more, you know, a saner approach, a more measured approach to the chair. And sure, like Han, you know, it's a uh, you know, very measured approach and he weighs his word carefully and he never says anything wrong, but he also nine years of action and we can judge him by that and just realize like, oh, his words are just, his words aren't wrong, but they're also empty. Like they're just, you know, they're, they help end media conferences and the times he does go out with the bold statements like mired in me mediocrity and, and uh, ask me after the parade, like the sound bites that he has uh, seat at the table, like, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Like when he does like stick his neck out, he's got nothing to back it up. Like, you know, and, and ultimately he ends up eating those words. So that's why he always reverts back to like, I'm going to answer your question by restating the premise of the question. And all of a sudden 45 seconds are off the clock and you're not going to follow up. Like that's kind of how he operates. So, I think we've seen enough by now that I hope like, you know, it's a little bit of emperor has no clothes or just like, you know, 
maybe you know Jerry Reinsdorf has really weird constraints, but he's proven he can't operate within those constraints. Maybe a few GMs could, but we know Rick Hahn can't. So you may as well like try something else. Have have somebody you know get creative and and yeah, it's it's tough. And and you know I'm I'm glad to see more, but also you know like you mentioned it earlier, and maybe this is what you're segueing to, like the signs or the sign popping up at the park over the weekend, like. It's nice to see White Sox fans getting more macro, bigger picture about it, and, and directing their complaints uh, further up the chain. You know, in order to uh, you know directly address the lack of change agent who's ahead of everything here. Yeah, and that's Jerry Reinsdorf. And on Saturday night, two heroes emerged, holding up the sign, sell the team, and they first started behind the dugout. And being at the game Saturday, I briefly saw the sign, and they didn't put it up. And then they it opened up your eyes. He briefly saw yeah, the sign. And then they uh, they moved to left field, and then they held the sign up longer. And that's when everybody was taking their photos, and they moved back to their original seats, hoping to get you know the glimpse of the TV camera so they could be on TV. Ultimately, the photogs that were there, I think one from USA Today, uh, captured the moment when they were went back behind the dugout again. I was happy to use it on Sox machine. Yeah. The entire photo service, everyone's got it now. So you can't ignore it. Obviously the sign gets taken down by a security guy. Maybe he gets a pat on the back from Jerry Reinstorf. Maybe one of his cigars is a good job. Thank you for taking down that sign. Ultimately, this is the root cause though. The Chicago white Sox. If we want the white Sox, all of us are white Sox fans for them to move in a different direction. They need to clean out the entire front office. And the only way that's going to happen is if Jerry Reinsdorf sells. You need a new owner, or because just professional sports and just how much money it is these days, a new ownership group to come in and bring their own people in. And the first step they have to do is hire a president of baseball operations who knows baseball operations. Because moving Mm -hmm. on from Kenny Williams, which let's be real, Kenny Williams is one foot out the door. He said it last November during the owner's meeting when he was pointing out the lack of African-Americans in the room and in the front offices of Major League Baseball that he's going to leave as soon as his contract expires. We don't know when the contract expires. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, 25 years from now. Maybe he's got a 25-year contract. Might be. But that's where the next rebuild needs to happen within the White Sox. Rick Hahn, this is his 10th season as GM. And he's been part of the organization for 20-plus years now. Jeremy Haber's been part of the organization for 25-plus years. Kenny Williams has been part of the organization for three decades now. There's a lot of people that have been part of the organization. And quite frankly, the White Sox front office is stale. The ideas are stale. They're very repetitive. They circled right back to what got them in trouble in 2016. Yes, the farm system is getting better, but as we have seen with all the injuries and we were the canaries in the coal mine at the beginning of the season, that depth is going to be the biggest problem for the White Sox. And guess what? It certainly is. And a big reason why they're two games below 500 uh, entering the, the final games of the month of August and maybe still below 500 September. Jerry Reinsdorf is going to turn 87 years old in February. And if there are minority owners hearing this, Somebody needs to bend his ear like his son Michael did with the Chicago Bulls. Michael has taken over the Chicago Bulls. 
And when Michael took over the Chicago Bulls, they gutted the front office and they brought in brand new guys from outside the Chicago Bulls. And it has really created a spark within the Bulls organization and you saw it on the court. There's still work to be done for the Chicago Bulls, but they are a a much better team and they are far more entertaining than they have been in the last decade. That's a good sign, but there is no Michael Reinsdorf within the Chicago White Sox organization. How much longer does 87-year-old Jerry Reinsdorf want to be the chairman of the Chicago White Sox? And you have two other organizations right now that are for sale, the Washington Nationals and the Los Angeles Angels. I'm not saying this is going to spark the idea of, well, maybe it's a seller's market. Maybe I should put up the team for sale. But there's no clear succession for the Chicago White Sox. And the remaining guys that are on the board for the Chicago White Sox Corporation, the youngest guy is 75 years old. Jerry's not even the oldest guy. Two of them are in their mid-90s. So the ownership group of the Chicago White Sox that control the majority of the organization are older than 75 years old. Does anyone really want to continue running the organization or do you just want to cash out now, sell the team for $1.7 billion and do whatever you want to do the rest of your remaining days on this planet? Like that's what I would be trying to convey to this board because there are many problems with your organization. It is hurting the business now. There's the on the field product and you're really making the fan base angry here. You don't want to continue to do that if you want to sell to the highest bidder. If you want the highest bidders to be more interested in your organization to buy than the Nationals and the Angels. Now, I think, would be the right time to start the process. But I do understand this is not a quick process. This is a one to two year process, which is why I've mentioned in other formats. I would be really surprised, Jim, in 2024 if Jerry Reinsdorf is still the chairman of the Chicago White Sox. I really feel like 2023 in a way is going to be his last ride with the White Sox, but this process needs to get started now if that's going to come to fruition. Well, we're going to be talking about an 88-year-old or 89-year-old Jerry Reinsdorf still being the chairman. Yeah, I'm curious too, like from a league perspective, you know, if it's if it's not great to have three teams in the block at one time if they really want to maximize bidding and value by concentrating all the efforts on investment groups, you know, on one team or maybe two teams. So maybe, you know, maybe they want to space it out a little bit versus saying like, even if you wanted to sell, maybe saying let's, let's hold off for a year. Let's wait till these teams are settled and then maybe start the process so we can, you know, get the bidders hungry again and maximize franchise value. But when it comes to, you know, Michael Reinsdorf, I, think there was like it wasn't immediate like rocky Wirtz was taking over bill Wirtz, right i think he had like it seemed like he had like a year or two of like continuing his dad's practices like with jim boylan like he said jim boylan's really good with the season ticket holders and such like it took a while for him to like to find his footing and get the confidence to say like yeah this is what we need to do like we really need to break off from our previous practices i think i've seen enough so it's my impression that it wasn't like an immediate transition but he eventually could read the room and say like things need to change and, and Garpax needs to go. And also I think it helped that they had the all-star game and just the terrible vibes uh, all around the city and the gar- fire Garpax signs and the no uh, bowls at the all-star game and national writers descending on Chicago to see like how much fans hate the team to realize, Oh, things need to change. And Michael Reinsdorf is going to be around for a while. So he can't, he doesn't want 30 years of this or however long he thinks he's going to be running it to be, you know, 
the case. Whereas like with Reinsdorf, yeah, just like I don't have any illusions that these signs are going to force immediate action, but I enjoy them. Like I enjoy seeing like the reflection of the frustration and rage <laughs> on the fans. I wouldn't mind like seeing like a whole like an uh, Spartacus movement to where like you know thousands of fans bring sell the team signs and like the entire security force just like spends the entire time going up and down the stairs to take down signs <laughs> like playing whack-a-mole with like uh you know where did i see that sign was that row 20 well that sign's not anywhere but row 12 has one and they just keep jogging up and down like yeah yeah i'm selling a team i'm selling a team just over and over again and uh yeah just to where it, it gets untenable but like the thing with Reinsdorf is that like he could just, you know, if he cares and I'm, I'm not concerned or convinced that he does, I think he just might be sealed off in his own room. But like in the event that this registers at all, a front office overhaul would be just like all he needed to do to take the heat off him for like three years. Like if he brought in like, you know, just a, you know, Astros, Brewers, Rays, Disciple, what have you, like kind of standard. Uh, front office, I guess, replacement level front office types, uh, as we've seen, like take over for, you know, the, the Orioles in, in recent years. Like if he gave them, you know, a new ownership group, like we wouldn't really be talking about Jerry Reinsdorf then. We said like, here's the new uh, front office leadership. Like we'd be talking about Ivy League guy or what have you, like you know, in, I'm hoping that they'd expand the office a little bit more than, expand the search to front office types more than just Ivy League guy. But let's just say new GM, new president of baseball operations, what have you. Like we'd be focusing on him or her versus Reinsdorf because we're learning what they say, what they do, uh, who they are, how they talk, how that converts into action. And Reinsdorf would be the furthest thing from our minds because we just have too much to focus on. But because we know Kenny Williams and we know Rick Hahn and we know, you know, we don't really know Jeremy Haver, but we know just the entire, like the, the, what the current structure of the front office has led to and what their habits are. It's very easy just to, like the Jake Diekman trade. I, I wrote about, you know, when that happened, yeah, I wrote about saying like, yeah, it's, it's exchange for a player they don't need for a player Boston doesn't need. And then like, I thought about some more and just said like, oh, he's in the books for 3.5 million last year. He can't throw strikes to lefties. Like the more I think about this, the more I don't like it. And sure enough, he's allowed 20 base runners and eight and two thirds innings. I think it just like, yeah, it's a case where it just, it's very easy to process their moves and say like, well, I know how this isn't going to work out. And most of the time we're right with her, you know, experience uh, telling us what their moves lead to. So it's just by having a new front office, by having a new vice president of baseball operations, GM, what have you, like, at least we, you know, we would spend time learning and not reacting and just saying, here's, here's what I think, but you know, we don't know what this track record is. So let's see how it unfolds. Like, that's why I think like, you know, Chris Katz, you know, as much as I don't like seeing him floated as a possible GM, just because it's internal, it's insular, everything like that. The project Birmingham thing is interesting just because it's different. It's a new way of approaching things. No other team has tried it. Other teams are interested in how it turns out. Like, I kind of think like it's gimmicky a little bit. Like ultimately DJ Gladney and Wes Kath will go to Winston-Salem. Uh, Norhe Vera will go to Winston-Salem or Birmingham. Like you know, all these guys who are being pressed right now for uh, double, you know, we, we all have no way of knowing whether it made an impact but it's interesting. It, it stokes my interest. Like it, it's, uh, I'm writing about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm following it to see how it goes. Like I have no real preconceived notions and I want to see guys do well. So I'm keeping an open mind about it. And just be, you know, that's, that's what it means to have somebody who's 
new enough and has different ideas to where like, all oh, that's all it takes to take the heat off of Reinsdorf. But like I said, like he, it, it's uh, no new friends policy. And so the faces stay the same. He does not want to trust anybody else. And so uh, we get uh, people he trusts who are not good at their jobs in the year 2022. And I think like, was it, was it Theo Epstein who said like after 10 years, you really have to evaluate whether you're keeping up with something. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe other people have said it too, but I think Epstein said it. He, you know, he references to Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh was the first one that mentioned. Okay. It. That was it. Yeah. And, and yeah, so that's, I knew it wasn't him. Uh, yeah. Bill Walsh, cause you know, and Epstein successful guys, but you know, Epstein ran his course, the Red Sox and he ran his course of the Cubs where he was kind of reaching a dead end. And he kind of said like, yeah, just, you know, this is, you know, maybe a new, uh, it's time for a new set of eyes. And then you look at the White Sox and they've been there for, 23 to 25 years you know basically in like various forms of leadership and just and with one post one year with a postseason series win to show for now that was the world series so yeah i mean they maximized that one opportunity but still like been in place since 2001 and maybe even before that if you count their like previous you know experience in the organization and they've had one year with a postseason series victory and that somehow keeps getting recycled that's just yeah. Well, speaking of that world championship, to your point, Jerry Reinsdorf may not care about anything that we're speaking of. And he just locks himself in a room smoking cigars, which if you're at that stage of your life, sell the team. Don't deal with this headache. But Matt Spiegel on 670 The Score during his hit and run show on Sundays. It's a very good show. I highly recommend checking it out live or checking out the podcast version. Brought up a rather, I think, plausible Hypothetical scenario. What if in their meeting after the season, Jerry Reinsdorf decides that Rick Hahn, you're going to move into a special advisory role because I don't fire anyone. And Tony, you're going to be a special advisor to me. And Chris Getz, you're going to take over the role and responsibilities of Rick Hahn. AJ Pruszynski is going to come in and fill in for Tony La Russa because that's the manager the White Sox need. They need someone to verbally beat up the young players into shape so they play through all their injuries and they stay on the field and they need someone to get in their face. So AJ Brzezinski's our guy. Thoughts on this hypothetical scenario, Jim? I mean, it does fit the MO in a White Sox, uh, you know, what the White Sox typically do. But, you know, I think if I'm... And I, I didn't hear the segment, so maybe he did. But I think anybody with a platform or you know, kind of sizable following, who floats this idea, should really make sure to like end it with, or or preface it with, this is a really dumb idea. But or <laughs> even though I think it's a really dumb idea, because it is a dumb idea. Like you know, Chris Katz, you know, I get wh- like, I kind of get it, but when it comes to hiring a manager. Two managers who have been under his uh, watch during his time as director of player development, Omar Vizquel, who's got that lawsuit that you mentioned, and Wes Helms, who has been indefinitely suspended from his job. You know, probably just it's a way of firing him, you know, apparently. But, you know, just for a, a undisclosed uh, indiscretion of some kind that was enough to fire him. So, I mean, that's who he's deemed manager material 
uh, during his time. So I don't want to see him hire a manager. Just be, you know, he might be good at some things, but he hasn't proven great at the like human resources part yet <laughs> part of the job too. I don't want him generally managing yet. I want him to kind of work on the player development part and, you know, work on, yeah, making, turning that into something before saying like, oh, he can take on more responsibilities, even though one of the responsibilities he's over two on. Yeah, and maybe the Viscell thing wasn't his fault because I, mean, I can't remember if Vis he hired Viscell or he inherited Viscell, but like certainly the way he handled the departure was bad by praising him on the way out when he could have said nothing. Like that's a case where, yeah, just I, I don't trust him to have those, you know, a greater management skill set yet. So, and Pierzynski, like, it's a dumb idea. Like it's, it's the thing about Pierzynski is I understand like, yeah, we need a guy who has desire, who has heart, who when it all costs, will you know, cut corners and exploit the rule book and frustrate opponents with a relentless desire to win and desire to succeed. And that's true to an extent, but he, you know, when you look at his career, he has no evidence of lifting teammates up. You know, he's not somebody here like, oh, he was a great mentor for me. Oh, he helped me you know, kind of rally me. He's somebody who, who taught me this. Like, he was very much in it for himself, which, you know, as I talked about before with Abreu, that's like one way to operate your career is to be kind of selfish and protect your interests. Like when they signed Toby Hall, he was pissed. When they promoted Tyler How Flowers, he was pissed. Um, like he had a reputation of like, you know, being, you know, uh, kind of a, a bully to anybody who had like less than five years of service time. I know Brandon McCarthy and Addison Reed threw at him the first chance they got wearing another uniform uh, because they didn't care for him. Like, there is very much an in and out click with the White Sox during that time with veterans and young players. Like I remember, you know, McCarthy and Brian Anderson and other guys like having trouble fitting in. And I think Gordon Beckham got in his favor just because he was an SEC football guy like Pierzynski. So like, you know, it was very much like an in and out, you know, and if you're concerned about the White Sox uh, clubhouse having clicks, like AJ Pierzynski is very much a click guy. He's not a unifier. When you'd hear about like, you know, uh, catchers going down and doing a rehab stint and leaving some equipment for the prospects coming up, he did not leave equipment. Like, it's just like he was kind of in it for himself, which is fine. You know, he's a professional. He's got to take care of his things. He's got to maximize his years beyond the plate. He did a great job doing so. But if you're looking for a guy with no experience and no evidence of leading a group of people, leading an entire group of people, not just leading a subset of people, not leading six players of a 25-man clubhouse, but like leading all 25 and being responsible for 38 players over the course of a year when you, when you count players cycling in and out. Like there's no evidence that he has done it. There's no evidence that he wants to do it. He has not like done any like Team USA stuff or winter ball stuff, short season stuff. Like he hasn't dipped his toe into managing in that regard. Like the way Alex Cora and Eduardo Perez had did it like through, you know, international baseball. Like there's just no evidence that, you know, Robin Ventura, like at least when he came into the fold, like he had a reputation of caring about other people and other players and like being a, a great clubhouse guy who young players could go to and anybody could go to, to learn about the game. And for a year, that worked beautifully because that's all the White Sox needed was somebody who uh, cared about the team more than his own contractual situation and getting the GM fired, which was at the end of Ozzie Guillen's tenure. All he cared about was how much he was getting paid and whether Kenny Williams was going to be the guy paying him or you know being in charge of his paycheck. So that's, you know, for a year that worked and then it all fell apart because, you know, conflicts came into greater relief and he just was not the guy who could manage a team past strain. But... Yeah, just AJ is a bad idea. And I, that's, yeah, 
I hope, you know, if people were on the fence saying it could work, like there's no evidence it could work. Like maybe it could work by a weird stroke of things like the way Mike Matheny worked in St. Louis just because the team was finally ready to run itself. And even though Matheny, like former catcher, uh, no managerial experience, turns out he loved bullies himself. Like <laughs> the, the Cardinals got better after he left just because the clubhouse was a mess. Because like, yeah, I'll let uh, veterans pick on uh, you know, young players because that's how it was when I was a player. And it turned out like certain players hated certain players in the St. Louis clubhouse. And it, Mike Schilt was not a good manager, but because somebody else was in charge and rectified some wrongs, the Cardinals had a huge second-half surge after Matheny left. And that's what I think it would look like. Former catcher knows the game, talks about the game well enough to in an interview situation to get the job. But as soon as like it comes down to managing people, it would be Terry Bevington who knows even less. Yeah, you didn't sell me on the idea, Jim. Uh, <laughs> I, I also think it's a terrible idea, but then again, I am advocating for the Chicago White Sox, for the love of God, if you decide to replace anyone in the front office or in the coaching staff, you need to go outside of the organization. Outside of the organization. I No ex-White Sox players, no promoting within, none of that. You need new ideas, you need fresh ideas, go outside of your organization to get those ideas because I still feel like if this core can stay healthy, they are talented enough to win the American league central. I don't know if there's enough talent on hand to overcome the top teams of the American league East or the Houston Astros, but I like the talent on hand more than what Minnesota has, what Cleveland has, even though Cleveland continues to get better Detroit and Kansas city. I just think this franchise right now really needs a set of eyes that's not part of the organization currently that could come in that has had success with other organizations and tell you this is where your shortfalls are and this is how we address them and you need to address them. You cannot just let these problems linger or you're never going to reach your potential. Basically, like the talent is there, but the talent doesn't fit. So some of the talent needs to shift like you know just they're too right-handed too slow too uh you know need to play better defense like there's the talent can be rearranged or perhaps like exchanged in order to have a better roster but take somebody with like better ideas like the white Sox do not have ideas like rick Hahn goes to the trade deadline comes away with just jake diekman and says like oh i'm i'm with you about being angry about the way this unfolded like you're in charge you can't get angry right <laughs> I can't trade for David Peralta. I don't know how David Peralta is doing, but like, yeah, I have a fax machine or my, my, my printer can turn into a fax machine if I needed to be. So like theoretically, you know, like if I could send paperwork over to complete a deal, like I could do it, but I can't, like, I don't, I can, I, you know, I cannot make trades on the White Sox behalf. <laughs> like it's uh yeah. Uh, he's yeah. That, that, that quote annoyed me to no end. It's like you, you're the one with agency here. Well, there's 34 games left to go. And the Royals are next. The Royals own the season series right now. They're nine and seven against the White Sox. So unless the White Sox sweep Kansas City, they're going to lose the season series to Kansas City. Your pitching problems for this series: it's going to be Brady Sainter against Lucas Giolito on Tuesday night. The way that Brady Sainter's been pitching, the White Sox will probably not score in that game. Wednesday night, it's Chris Bubich against Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn's been throwing the ball a lot better for the White Sox, but the White Sox are not winning games where he's been throwing well. 
And then Thursday afternoon, the Royals don't know who's going to be starting quite yet, but it'll be Johnny Cueto trying to bounce back from his poor outing against the Arizona Diamondbacks on Thursday afternoon. Jim, fortunately, unfortunately, there's just 34 games left to go in this season. How will the White Sox keep your attention? Well, I'm paid to do it, so maybe I'm not the guy to ask. <laughs> Look, I, re- I recommend people uh, you know, just have an, an audience that uh, looks for us to watch it so they don't have to. But, yeah, it's to me, I, I think what I'm going to be watching is, you know, there are certain individual players like, you know, Gavin Sheets, his his improvement has my attention. Like, this is kind of the guy I thought he might be, which is why, like, you know, I was reluctant to trade him just because they might need that left-handed bat now. Um, it's He's kind of taken a, the scenic route uh, to get there, but, like, his bats are pretty good. So I'm curious to see how he does the rest of the year. Like, Aloy Jimenez, Yohan Mikado, like, that group, like, they need to we need to see what they are as we go into the off season to kind of understand what we want the white Sox to do with them. So, you know, that has my attention, even though it's not fun, you know, it's not necessarily enjoyable, but it's like, it has my attention because I don't exactly know what the white Sox should do with them. If they can do anything with them, like, you know, Moncada might be here just because of a salary and he just, they might have to cross fingers until he has enough, you know, I guess his contract becomes an expiring contract and they can throw enough money to make it, you know, a change of scenery deal happen. But, you know, those are the kind of, you know, there aren't a whole lot of fun storylines to follow, like Lance Lynn, hoping he gets better. So he makes, you know, better use of the second you know, year of his contract. You know, Michael Kopech, can he come back, see what he does? Like, all these are on, you know, not very fun, but they're valuable. So there's that, like Carlos Perez, like I felt bad watching his debut. Like he looked, he looked overamped behind the plate. Like, you know, his catching was really loud. Like he had the catcher interference, like stabbing in a fastball, like, he looked really nervous out there, like behind the plate. Like, and, and I'm hoping that was just first game jitters, first time playing in a three-deck stadium. And because he didn't look that bad in Charlotte. Like he's, he's better than that. I'm hoping he gets a chance to override that first impression before Yasmani Grandal come back. Grandal looks like he's close to coming back, so maybe he doesn't get an opportunity. But I felt bad for him. But like whichever young players come up, hoping for like, you know, good first impressions. But really it's just about like trying to – Besides, like, you know, keeping, you know, I, I guess what's their postseason uh, chances down to like 15% now, but I'm guessing I'm keeping like 15% of my brain open for the possibility that they do have a good week and Cleveland has a bad week and somehow they're back in it. Like, I'm not thinking they can, but I'm thinking like, you know, circumstances can conspire to drag them back into the race, even though they don't deserve it. So I think it'd be too easy for us to be done with his team by the first week of September. (laughs) As much as we might, you know, some of us might be refreshed from having the finality and the closure of being done with weeks to go. I don't think the White Sox will do us the favor. At least part of my brain says the White Sox won't be that kind to us. And we're going to have to keep talking like, well, maybe they can. They're only three games back somehow. Uh, But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. It's just, you know, Watching the way these seasons end for certain players to see like how much value they offer, how much can be expected of them going into a team building mode. And then like whether how I should feel about them if they're traded is, is really how I'm looking at it. I am paying attention to Dylan Cease. Justin Verlander left his start on Sunday with an injury. Does that open the door for Dylan Cease in the Cy Young race? Maybe not, but I thought he had a strong start on Sunday. Can he continue 
that type of those types of starts going seven, eight innings, really accumulate those innings and keeping the other teams below three runs. I think that could really help him, especially for his ERA and uh, try to chase down Justin Verlander in the American League Cy Young voting. Is Sebi Zavala the answer at backup catcher in 2023? We we mentioned on how he has been performing well for the White Sox. And then finally, Jose Abreu. Is this the end? Is this going to be the final month that we see Jose Abreu in a White Sox uniform? Because there's really no clarity on this situation, unlike the last time he was a free agent, where we had a lot of debates of, yes, the White Sox are pre- probably bringing back Jose Abreu, is that a good idea to, I have no idea if the White Sox or Jose Abreu want to continue this partnership after the 2022 season. What's next? Because that's really the topic on hand. And if it does come to fruition this offseason that Abreu decides to leave and join another franchise or the White Sox don't have interest in bringing back Jose Abreu, then I think it's worthwhile to go to the home games to watch Jose Abreu in a White Sox uniform because he has provided so much to this franchise and he's provided great memories throughout the years. Just unfortunately, he has played for a lot, a lot of bad White Sox teams and uh, he didn't deserve that. And he's one of the best White Sox hitters in, in franchise history. So it'll be fun to see him in the end if it is truly the end. And speaking of the end, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying to think, do I have a sentence here to, to, to pick it up? And like, no, I don't. Like, oh, another guy can add is Lucas Chilito. Oh, that's even no, more, like, no, this is no. no we're, this we're is, good. We, we're we're yeah. at a good place. There's, there's 34 games left to go, folks. We're still going to be talking about this team. We're still going to be writing about this team on SoxMachine.com. So if you are still going to be, you're going to be one of those fans, like, I'm not going to watch the games, but I still want to know how the White Sox are doing. Don't worry. Sox machine. We watch the White Sox, so you don't have to. We'll keep doing that for you guys. We're another group that won't let the White Sox win. Exactly. Exactly. This is where our stubbornness <laughs> kicks in. So we'll continue the podcast about them. We'll continue to write about them, and you can continue following us on Sox Machine on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And uh, if you enjoy our work and you want us to continue providing the level of work that we do, you can support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, uh, where our Patreon supporters, they get more, they get exclusive content, they get every versions of the podcast and website, and they also get the first opportunity to acquire our Sox Machine swag. Monthly plans start at $2 and you can save with an annual subscription. Yeah, if, if say you have money in your monthly budget for White Sox stuff and you say like, well, I don't want to go to games, like, hey, maybe slide a little bit over to us or, yeah, meh, meh, meh. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like the idea. Great sales pitch, Jim. Again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. And we leave this episode with a song. Produced by one of our own, Greg Nix, who got inspired from the Brave fans who brought in the sell the team sign over the weekend. Thanks for listening. When I find myself watching the White Sox steaming chasing on TV. 
I see a sign and it says sell the team. Now the home team's Hall of Famer has Leury batting number three. Please, old Uncle Jerry, sell the team. Sell the team, sell the team, sell the team, sell the team. I hope Jerry Reinstorf sells the team. Cause all the broken hearted Sox fans living in the world agree. There's only one answer, sell the team. For though the whole front office has earned the axe as much as the heat, Jerry, only you can sell the team. Sell the team, sell the team, sell the team, sell the team. I'm begging you, please, Jerry, sell the team. Sell the team, sell the team, sell the team, sell the team. For God's sake, Jerry Reinstorf, sell the team. over will you still be here in 23 i'll give you the answer sell the team you've ruined every summer since way back when i was a teen 